Well, many years ago, a famous preacher by the name of Dr. Ironside became convicted of his lack of humility. And Dr. Ironside really just felt awful about how arrogant and prideful and haughty he was much of the time. And so he reached out to a friend of his to ask for advice. And the friend said, here's what you want to do if you honestly want to grow in humility. I want you to get a sandwich board. And on that sandwich board, I want you to write the plan of salvation. Then I want you to wear it and walk up and down the streets of Chicago's business and shopping district for an entire day. And that's exactly what Dr. Ironside did. For an entire day, Dr. Ironside walked up and down the streets of the business and shopping district of Chicago. And upon completion of this humiliating task, when he got back to his apartment, as he was removing the sandwich board, he found himself thinking, boy, there's not another man in all of Chicago that would do what I did today. Humility has been compared to a watermelon seed. Have you ever dropped a watermelon seed and tried to pick it up off the floor? It's pretty much impossible, you know? Right when you think you have it, it slips through your grasp. And humility is just like that. Humility is elusive. Humility is difficult to measure in our lives when we're actually growing in it because as soon as you become aware of it, you're tempted to become prideful, two steps forward, one step back. And let's face it, humility is just plain difficult. But hear me today, humility is not without its rewards. The pursuit of humility is not some barren and fruitless endeavor. No, the Lord Jesus Christ said, God blesses the humble. James said that God gives grace to the humble. And so if we are people that want to be the recipients of God's grace, if we want God to bless our lives, and if we want to truly learn to love our lot in life, then it's paramount that we grow in humility. So this morning, I want to invite you to grab your Bible and turn to Psalm 131, where David is going to show us three ways we can grow in humility. And the first of those ways is simply this, if we want to grow in humility, we need to eliminate egotistical thinking. Psalm 131, beginning in the first portion of verse one, David says this, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. What did David mean by that? Well, in order for us to understand what he's really saying here, we need to understand a little bit about the Hebrew language. The Old Testament, the first 39 books in the Bible, were primarily written in the Hebrew language. And in Hebrew, the Hebrew word for heart doesn't so much mean the place where we feel things or the seat of our emotions. No, the Hebrew word for heart actually is more like the center of our intellectual life. And in fact, oftentimes, when you're reading through the Old Testament and you come across the word heart, not always, but many times, the better translation into English is the word mind. I'll give you a couple examples of this from the Old Testament to helpfully illustrate what I'm getting at here. The first comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 6. In Genesis, chapter 6, we read the following. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man 
was great in the earth and that every intention of the, get this, thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. If you substitute the word mind for heart there, it makes a little bit more sense, right? I mean, how does your heart have thoughts? Substitute the word mind. Every intention of the thoughts of the mind were only evil continuously. Or how about here in 2 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 23? King Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, people would come all around to hear the wisdom that God had given him. And listen to how his wisdom is described in 2 Chronicles 9, 23. All the kings of the earth sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Again, that's kind of strange. How could wisdom reside in the heart? Well, the better translation there is probably the English word mind. And oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes when you're reading through the Old Testament and you come across the word heart, sometimes it can mean soul. Sometimes it can mean the seat of your emotions. But a lot of the time, it really has to do with your thought life, your intellectual life. And if you simply substitute the word mind for heart, oftentimes you'll get a better understanding of the original meaning of the Hebrew. So we're gonna do that in our passage. We're gonna jump back to Psalm 131, verse one, and just substitute the word mind for heart. Psalm 131, beginning in verse one, O Lord, my mind is not lifted up. O Lord, my mind is not lifted up. What's David saying here? Well. It's pretty clear. David is saying in his mind, in his thought life, when he thinks about himself, he does not think more highly of himself than he ought to. When David thinks about his skills, his competencies, and his talents, he is not swelling up with conceit. Rather, he has a realistic appraisal of those skills, of those competencies that God has given them. Now, It should be stated here that David is not saying, I'm a worm and I'm incompetent in every area of life. That's not what David is saying. Rather, David is saying, I know myself warts and all. David is saying, I know as a king, as a warrior, as a poet, and as a musician, the competencies that God has given me. But I also know just as well the edges of those competencies that God has placed on my life. Came across a great quote about humility recently in preparing for this message that I just thought captures the idea really accurately. I'm going to share that with you right now. When you think about humility, there's all kinds of misunderstandings, but this quote really nails it. The true way to be humble is not to stoop until you're smaller than yourself, but to stand at your real height against some higher nature, and I love this, that will show you what the real smallness of your greatness is. Or think about how the Apostle Paul described humility and this humble state of mind in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, very much has the same idea that David has of not allowing his mind to be inflated. Listen to what he says. By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure measure of faith that God has given him. 
Well, how can we know if we are thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to? How can we know if we're sober in our judgment? How can we know if we are following David's, David's example of not allowing our mind or our heart to be lifted too high? Let me suggest two diagnostic questions for you today as you engage in a little introspection and think about those questions. First question I have for you is this. Do you typically believe you are the smartest person in the room? I mean, can we just be honest here? Whatever the room may be, do you typically, more times than not, think I'm the smartest person in the room? And you could just as well say the prettiest person in the room, the best athlete in the room, the best student in the room, the funniest person in the room, the most successful person in the room. It doesn't really matter. But do you typically find yourself thinking, boy, I am the smartest person in this room? Second question. Do you believe that you are omni-competent? That is, when you look at every domain in life, do you believe that you are excellent no matter what the domain might be? Or at the very least, do you believe, well, sure, I'm willing to concede I'm not excellent and superior in every area of life. I sure am in many. But if I had the desire to be great at that area of life that I don't know much about, I would crush the competition. Do you find yourself thinking, those thoughts. Well, if you do, if you typically believe you're the smartest person in the room, and if you believe you are omnicompetent, may I suggest to you that God may still have just a little bit of work to do in your life as it relates to humility. If we're going to grow in humility, we need to eliminate egotistical thinking. Second, we'll see here that not only should we eliminate egotistical thinking, we need to avoid the entitlement trap. You know, sermons and commercials alike bombard us with messages like, you deserve the best. Don't settle for less. Good enough, that's just not good enough for you. Or what about this quote I came across recently on social media? Show me the size of your dreams, and I'll show you the size of your God. These charlatans would have us believe that with enough drive, enough faith, and if we shoot for the stars, we can accomplish anything, and I mean anything we set out to do in life. But apparently, David didn't get the memo. Picking back up in verse 1 of Psalm 131, David says, not only is his heart and mind not lifted up, that's his own internal framing, what's going on in his head and his heart. No, he also says his orientation to the outside world is humble. Not only is his heart not lifted up, but his eyes are not raised too high. In other words, he's not apparently shooting all that high in every single area of life every single day. His focus, his aim, his trajectory, what he's preoccupied with, according to him, at least, is not too high. And he goes on to elaborate, nor do I occupy myself with things that are too great and too marvelous for me. David was someone that apparently didn't make it a habit on a daily basis of just shooting for the stars in any and every area of life. David was somebody who set big goals at times, 
But just because there was some domain or some accomplishment or some luxury out there, he didn't feel that he was entitled to it. He said, no, some things are too wondrous for me. Some things are too great for me. Some things in life, they're just setting your sights too high. That's how David looked at the outside world. It's not because David was lacking in self-confidence, and it's not because David was someone who was lazy or was fearful. No, David exercised this kind of humility when it came to goals and what he set his sights on, because with David, there was zero entitlement. David was not an entitled man. David was somebody who, when he looked at his life, he realized if we're going to deal with entitlement, if we're going to deal with what I deserve, if we're going to deal with what I have coming to me, then that's not a very good prospect. David, is my mic slipping, by the way, or am I losing my mind here? It feels like, there we go. This is God teaching me humility. This actually was all planned. No, I'm just kidding. It wasn't. Where was I? David was someone who, he had zero entitlement, right? David was someone who was not an entitled individual. If David was going to think about entitlement, that was actually a pretty scary prospect for David, if we're being honest, because David, as a sinful man, knew very well what he was entitled to in life. David knew that as a sinner who routinely, throughout the course of his life, uh, broke God's commands violated his conscience and sinned against God, David, aware of his own sinfulness, knew if God dealt with me based upon what I deserve, that's not a very happy ending. David recognized that the wages of sin were death and that his sins, as well as our sins, really don't deserve anything outside of physical and spiritual Death. And so David was somebody who never wanted to try and take God to court. You know, David didn't want to try and sue God to get what he had coming to him because David understood that was not going to end very well at all. David did not feel entitled to anything except God's punishment. And so David, even on his worst days, knew in his heart of hearts that he was having a much better life than he could ever have deserved. When David had a peer receive some lucrative promotion, David didn't charge God with some wrongdoing. David wasn't upset with God or bitter towards God. You know why? Because David knew God doesn't owe me that promotion in the first place. Furthermore, when David would receive a promotion, if you study his life, when he had big windfalls, when he had huge promotions, when he had a big upgrade in lifestyle, David was someone who didn't think when those great seasons came along, took you long enough, God, what were you waiting for? Why have I had to wait this long? It feels like you're late on this one, God. No, when David received blessings and promotions and improvements that were serious improvements in lifestyle, you know what he said to himself? Who am I? Who am I that God would be so good to me? I'm some podunk shepherd from some obscure place with a family that's not great stock. God, why on earth are you being this good to me? 
When David missed the promotion, he wasn't upset because he understood God didn't owe him or you or me anything except punishment for our sins. When David got the promotion, he didn't become puffed up with conceit because in the final analysis, at the end of the day, David understood the fact that he wasn't entitled to any of his blessings in life, including those things that we call accomplishments and achievements. No, David realized that every good and perfect gift comes from above, from God, and therefore, whether he got the blessing or didn't get the blessing, he didn't come apart at the seams or become puffed up with conceit and pride. You say, what do you mean he didn't deserve or was not entitled to his achievements? Isn't an achievement by definition, something you've earned, something that you've merited, something that you have coming to you. Well, we tend to think that way, but hear the word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, the Apostle Paul writes to this very entitled, arrogant congregation in Corinth, and he asks two questions to make a point. First question, Paul says, what do you have that you have not received? Time out for just a second, asking the same question of us today. What blessing do we have in life, whether we deem it an achievement, an accomplishment or not, that we did not receive from the hand of God? Answer, zero, none of them. Every blessing we have in life, including those things we think to be achievements, at the end of the day are a gift given to us. And since that is the case, he goes on to say, if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? In Deuteronomy chapter 8, along these same lines of thinking, there's a warning for those who are prospering. And I think it makes the same point clear about those things we tend to think of as achievements. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 17 and 18, a warning as the children of Israel are going into the promised land, they're about to be in this amazing period of prosperity Listen to the warning they receive. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and my might, the might of my hand, have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. When you think about the fact that you and I and David have time and time again violated our conscience done things we knew to be wrong, sinned against our neighbor and sinned against God, and therefore our entitlement, if we want to talk entitlement, what we have earned, what we have merited, what we have coming to us should be physical death and eternal spiritual death. When you consider that fact, you would think that God's people would be humble and they would not be entitled. But you know as well as I do, the reality is all of us tend to be very very entitled. Oh, sure, we'll admit God doesn't owe us this or God doesn't owe us that, and we might pay lip service to the idea that all God really owes us is punishment for our sins. We would be quick to say other people shouldn't be entitled in their lives, but if we're being really honest, when it comes to our own sense of entitlement, we feel like we're the exception. We feel like she shouldn't be entitled and he shouldn't be entitled. But in my case, I'm the outlier. I'm the exception to the rule. 
And this is one of the schemes of the enemy, folks, because the enemy wants us to be entitled. And you'll see why in just a moment. There's all kinds of reasons why we feel that we're entitled. You know, sometimes it can be past pain and suffering. God has suffered so much in the past, now you owe me this, that, or the other. Sometimes we believe God owes it to us to right some past wrong. Sometimes we think we're overqualified for our station in life, or we think we're so godly and patient that since we've been godly and humble and patient, now God owes it to us. There's a million reasons why we can find ourselves feeling entitled. But folks, this is a scheme of the enemy. I mean, take the example of someone who has past hurt that is now becoming a springboard for a sense of entitlement. Not only has the enemy wreaked havoc with that past pain, with that suffering, that's sort of like the, the principle, but now the enemy's got interest because he's got you feeling entitled as a result of it. He's got me feeling entitled as a result of it. And here's the punchline, folks. Entitlement and misery are a package deal. Wherever your life takes you, whatever the trajectory may be, in the present, in this season of life, if you feel entitled to something greater or better or superior in your mind, that is a recipe for misery. So if we want to be people who are blessed, if we want to be people receiving God's grace in our lives, if we want to be people that learn to love our lot in life, we need to drop the entitlement. Third and finally, not only do we need to eliminate egotistical thinking and avoid the entitlement trap, third and finally, we must hope in God and strive sensibly. Back into Psalm 131, we're going to wrap up with verses 2 and 3 in this chapter. Psalm 131, verses 2 and 3, David has just completed these sayings, right? I've my heart's not lifted too high. My eyes aren't lifted too high. I don't occupy myself with things too great and too wonderful for me. He's just said, here are some of the things I don't do. Now he's going to tell us what humble people will do. Verse 2, oh, I have calmed and quieted my soul. I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. And then he concludes this short, beautiful psalm with, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Can you picture anything more full of tranquility and contentment and bliss and perpetual happiness than a weaned child on the lap of its mother? That small child gazing into the face of her mother, knowing that all is well. I know the character of my mother. I know that she's been good to me. I know that she's present and she's here with me. David says, that's what my soul is like. If we want to grow in humility, not only should we stop doing some things, having a haughty mind, having eyes raised too high, being preoccupied with things that are too great and wonderful for us, those are things we shouldn't do. But what we should do is spend time basking in the presence of God and trusting God's character for this particular season of life. 
And that's precisely what David does. Verse three again, O Israel, hope in the Lord, or your translation may say, wait for the Lord. The idea here is something has not yet been fulfilled, and yet in spite of that, I am content. I'm as content and full of bliss as a weaned child with its mother because I'm humble, because I'm content, because my hope is in the Lord both now and forevermore. Now, I wanna be quick to point out growing in humility, growing in contentment, and hoping in the Lord does not mean that we are to be passive in our lives. It does not at all. God has delegated a role to us. We have responsibility in our lives, and we should not try and delegate that back up to God and spiritualize it by saying, I'm hoping, I'm waiting, I'm being humble. No, God expects us to hustle, to work hard, and to strive, but not to strive with our hair on fire. Rather, we are to strive sensibly. Psalm 127, verses one through two, paint a beautiful picture of how we have a role in our lives and God has a role in our lives. Psalm 127, verse one, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Stop right there for just a moment. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Two people have roles there. The builders do have a role. God has delegated to them. Make plans, collect the materials, get experts, build a sound structure. We have a role to play in our lives, in our future, in setting goals, and all the rest. We have a role. But did you catch what Psalm 127 one also said? But it doesn't matter how driven, how organized, how much you hustle, how much you dream, it doesn't matter at all how much you may aspire for something, how overly ambitious you may be in your pursuit of something. If the Lord's not building the house, it will not happen. It's repeated in slightly different terms. Unless the watchman watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. Again, we shouldn't delegate to God watching over the city. We have a role to play in our lives and our planning and our future and setting goals and pursuing them. But at the end of the day, I don't care how driven you are. I don't care how many self-help books you have. I don't care how much nonsense preachers or different kinds of charlatans have filled your head with. If God is not in it, it will not come to pass. Now, there's nothing wrong with setting big goals. There's nothing wrong with having high aspirations in life. David had big goals and high aspirations from time to time. One of them was David wanted to build the temple for God. You may or may not know this, but up until the time of David, when the Jewish people wanted to worship God, here's how the priests would minister. They would go into a tent, a tabernacle, and it was portable because they were always on the move until they made it to the promised land. And it wasn't, frankly, all that impressive as far as structures go. And as the Jewish people get into the land and they settle over time and they prosper, David is living in this amazing palace. 
And David is just thinking about, look at this beautiful home that I get to live in, and God's out in this temporary structure, this tent, this tabernacle. This isn't right. I wanna do something for God. He's been so good to me. I'm gonna build a permanent structure, one that's beautiful and ornate here in Jerusalem so that we can worship God and give him respect and glory and honor through this building and its architecture. No self-serving motives. This is all about trying to glorify God. His motives were amazing. And in spite of that desire, God told David, no. God said, David, you're a man of war. You've shed much blood. You are not the one who's going to build my temple, but your son, King Solomon, will build the temple. And you know what David didn't do? David didn't say, well, I'm taking my ball and going home if I can't build this thing. No. David said, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, they're trying to build this thing in vain. God, if my role is one where I can't build the house, what can I do? And you know what David does? He prepares plans. He makes blueprints. He collects materials so that Solomon is in a better position to build that temple in the next generation. Folks, to be sure, there's nothing wrong with aiming for first violin. If you wanna be first chair and that's a goal of yours, that is awesome. Set that goal high and chase after it with everything you've got. There's nothing wrong with aiming with being first chair violin, but there is something wrong if God says, no, I want you to play second fiddle for this season of life, if God tells you that and you say, I'm out, there is something wrong with that. Furthermore, it's a pretty bad strategy, right? If you wanna be first chair and you find yourself in the station of second chair, well, about the dumbest thing you can do is be lousy at second chair violin. Now, as we're beginning to wrap up in the next few minutes here, I just want to ask a question. I feel like I have some brothers and sisters out here in the congregation and online, and I want to see a show of hands if you'll be so bold. Where are my type A people today? Any fellow type A people out here? I see some hands that should be raised, but I appreciate it. These, keep your hands up. We are some of the most annoying people on planet Earth. We will drive you crazy we will absolutely ruin your day and throw a hissy fit sometimes. Type A people are in the house. Hey, if you're a type A person, I wanna address what I anticipate is an objection you may have to growing in humility. If you're type A, you're a bit perfectionist, you're very driven, very organized, very disciplined, all this talk about becoming humble and acknowledging the fact that yes, I have a role in my life, but so does God, and maybe there are some things that are too great, wondrous for me that I shouldn't be messing with. That kind of talk might bring up this objection in your heart and mine. Well, if I get really serious about this humility business, if I get really serious about trying to become content in this season of life, might that threaten my trajectory in life and result in me underachieving and not accomplishing all that I could have accomplished. I mean, if I get serious about humility and contentment, 
is that gonna make me tap the brakes a little bit too much in life and might I underachieve when all is said and done? Well, billionaire and right-hand man to Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, gave some great advice I saw recently. Charlie Munger said, I do not think it's wise to set out to become the president of the United States or to become a billionaire. The odds are just too high against you. Rather, I would tell you to aim low and overshoot. And Charlie Munger, worth billions of dollars, said his financial goals were to become financially independent. He just overshot over time, oftentimes, he added, by accident. Charlie Munger seems to be doing okay with himself with some natural humility and a little bit of sensibility when it comes to goal setting in life. Take another example. Take today's example. Did King David underachieve in life due to his humble frame of mind? He was a king. He was a renowned warrior. He was a poet. He was a musician. We're talking about him some 3,000 years later. No, I think King David, he did pretty okay for himself. I bet his eulogy was at least marginally passable. Humility will not cause you to underachieve in your life's aspirations. If anything, it will help you make more headway. James chapter four, verses one, two, and six talk a little bit about what I would call drive and humility. James four, verses one through two and six, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? This is a driven person, my passions, my drive, what I'm going after in life. It's just through the roof. I'm fired up. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And then here is really the key phrase here, folks. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Quick show of hands. Who wants God Almighty to oppose your life's plans? Let's see those hands nice and high. Do you want God himself in opposition to you and your life's pursuits? According to James, God actively opposes the proud. And when we engage in haughtiness and arrogance and entitlement and egotistical thinking, that's what we're signing up for. We're signing up for God to oppose us. Why does he do it? Is it because he's mean? No, it's because God will not co-sign your narcissism. But the flip side of that coin is beautiful. God opposes the proud, but he does give grace to the humble. Do you want God's grace in your life? Show of hands. Who wants God's grace in your life? Okay, I'm seeing a few more hands in response to that question. Well, the path to that, according to sacred scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is growing in humility. Finally, we're gonna close with this. Matthew 23, verse 12, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 23, 12. This is a general principle that you can listen to and have the benefits of, or you can ignore. You're still going to find out this is how it works. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. On the other hand, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. What about you? Could it be said of you that you're someone who's growing in humility? Are you someone who is just as content with their station and lot in life as a weaned child in the lap of its mother? If not, hey, no shame, no guilt. 
But my prayer for you and for me is if we can't say that about ourselves, that the Holy Spirit would both challenge and correct us, help us to confess of this sin of entitlement and being full of ourselves, but also that a huge weight and a lot of pressure will just be released right now as the Holy Spirit comforts you by the fact of knowing if God's in it and God has given you this particular season and station of life, if you hold his hand and pursue him, no one can stop it because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your patience with us and thank you for your word. God, thank you for making it so clear in short statements like God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, but then also putting some skin on it by helping us see it both in our own lives and the lives of others and the lives of those like King David. God, whoever today is refusing to hand the reins of their life over to you in pride and self-reliance, whether that's with trusting you for salvation and turning from their sins, or it's relinquishing some strife over a career, a relationship, a financial goal, a health goal, whatever it may be, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work as we respond in this final song today. We pray all this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.